Well, I discovered this week that if you search the word friend in the Trinity hymnal, you will find approximately 87 references, and at least 70 of them are referring to Jesus. Now, just to name a few, we've already sung some. I have a friend, oh, such a friend, what a friend we have in Jesus. One name there is above all others, which well deserves the name of friend, and um, Jesus, um, what a friend of sinners. Now, all of this, some of these and some of the others you'll find might seem a tad sentimental, but even us flinty-faced Calvinists are given occasionally, at least, to some degree of sentimentality. And there is no gainsaying <coughs> that, um, that Jesus is the friend of sinners. Um, that's one of his names given him uh, in the Bible. Ironically, was given him by his enemies. And which is my pick uh, for this evening for yet one more name of Jesus, the friend of sinners. Now we'll find that in Matthew chapter 11. You'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, the very end of that chapter. Oh, excuse me, it's not the end of the chapter. It's the middle of the chapter. Um, it's, it's in verses 16 to 19. But uh, since this text uh, picks up at, uh, at the very end of an incident, uh, of which the reading is um, quite long, and raises a lot of interesting questions, which I'm not answering uh, this evening, I think I should just fill in the context to get us to this given name. Um, thereafter, so, so this starts out with John the Baptist, if you look. Um, and the story behind that, of course, is that after 400 years of prophetic silence, um, John the Baptizer suddenly appears, and he looks just like an Old Testament prophet. <clears throat> dressed up in appropriate manner. Um, he's preaching a baptism of repentance. He's calling listeners who've traveled as far as from Jerusalem to hear him. John was the forerunner and the advance man for Jesus, who actually appeared before uh, John, was baptized by John, formally began his messianic ministry after John's baptism. But John... <coughs> incurs the wrath of Herod, and especially his wife, um, when he publicly denounces their illicit marriage and ends up in jail, which gives him pause about whether Jesus was really the Messiah after all. So he sends messengers to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come, they ask, or are we to look for another? And Jesus answered, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached for them. And blessed is the one who has not been offended by me. So this was sort of a gentle rebuke. For those, of course, were the very things prophesied in the Old Testament, particularly throughout Isaiah, 
that Messiah would do when he came. And those were the very things, in fact, that Jesus was doing. Giving sight to the blind, healing the lepers, raising the dead, and preaching the good news to the poor. So the messengers uh, report back to John, and Jesus turns to the crowd and gives them high praises for John. John, he tells them, <coughs> is the last Old Testament prophet. He's the Elijah of the age. He was sent to prepare the way to point them, to point us, to the kingdom and to the Savior. But then he gets pretty direct and personal with the gathered crowd. Let's pick up with verse 16. Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. <clears throat> we sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So how are we to uh, understand these words and what do they say to us today? Well, first I want to talk about discontented sinners and then uh, secondly about a proven friend. So beginning with these discontented sinners um, and Jesus addresses this gathered crowd um, and he uh, addresses them first of all as discontented sinners. Folk who are never satisfied, always finding fault. And he does this by telling them a little parable, a little story with a sharp point to it. It's about children who have perhaps come to, um, uh, with their parents to the, um, to the marketplace, and their parents are shopping. And the children uh, gather together for play, only they, they can't agree on, um, uh, on what to play for, what sort of games, and they're never happy with one another's suggestions. Um, one of the little girls says, let's play weddings. Da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. Oh, yes, squeals one of the other girls. And, and I love weddings. My sister was in a wedding last week. I'll be the bride, and, and, and Jacob, uh, you, can, you can be the groom. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today. And, and then we can dance, says another girl. <clears throat> and, and, but one of the boys says, oh, no, no, no. Weddings are silly. And dancing is for girls. I know, says another boy. Let's, let's play funerals. <laughs> oh, yuck, says one of the girls, the oldest girls. You always like dead stuff. We are not playing funerals. Well... You see, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. This sort of petty quarreling and childish miscontents and peevish children. That's the way of sinners and that's the way of sin. For, as uh, he tells us uh, in the text, uh, John the Baptist came 
uh, neither eating nor drinking. And you say, he has a demon. <clears throat> the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a drunkard and a, and, and a glutton and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So you get it, don't you? God first sends his chosen prophet John to prepare the people for the appearance of Christ. He is a stern, no-nonsense, austere sort of fellow uh, with a message demanding repentance and appropriate change in, of life in preparation for the Christ. And, and people were saying, oh, he is so harsh, so, so severe. Who can listen to a man like that? He must be possessed. He has a demon. Then the Son of Man comes. This is Messiah, the Christ, who mixes freely with all sorts of people and lives in the middle of their messy lives. Think about Jesus attending the, uh, the wedding, or rather the, the, the party thrown for him by the newly converted uh, slimy tax collector Zacchaeus and all of his friends. Uh, so what do people say about him? They say, look at him. A, 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 a glutton and a drunkard. And look at the company he keeps. Why, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, that's the way, you see, Jesus characterizes this generation of people in his day. They're never satisfied like silly children who won't play weddings or funerals. John comes preaching repentance and he's too severe. But when Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel, well, he's too sociable. Hangs with the wrong crowd. Friend of sinners. Well, that's the way it was in Jesus' day. And guess what? <clears throat> it's the word of God, so it speaks to us. And in fact, it's not hard to put the shoe on, is it? Um, that's the way it is today as well. People all around us are, are never happy with religion no matter what it is. And, and whatever they say, whatever anyone says, they're dissatisfied uh, with, uh, with God, what they're hearing. Uh, they're unhappy. They're critical of God. They're, and they're not ashamed to play the judge. Uh, they never have much liked his law. They don't care for his gospel. And they're pretty divided over Jesus, his son. And they're quick to find fault with his people, uh, calling themselves Christians who they regard as dupes and fools and fanatics. It's a sad thing, writes J.C. Ryle, that there are always thousands of people who are just as unreasonable as these Jews. They are equally perverse and equally hard to please. Uh, whenever we, whatever we preach or teach, they find fault. Uh, whatever manner of life uh, they're dissatisfied. Uh, do you know some Christian who's very serious about holiness in life and careful about how they live and, and what they believe? Perhaps they're precise and strict in their doctrine or perhaps they uh, express disapproval of the status quo or, or, or some concern over the current accepted social political wisdom of the day. And what do people say? They say, oh, these Christians, they are so self-righteous and narrow-minded. Actually, dangerous people, bigots. Oh, yes, overly righteous, says someone. Moral terrorists. They stir people up and ought to be held responsible for it. On the other hand, there's others who are 
actually unhappy with the freedom of the gospel. They, they pass by the pastor's house on Saturday night. This would have been my house and my wife's house 15 years ago. And they hear loud music and kids dancing. And they say, look at that. Why, why look at that. Um, they're no better than anyone else. Listen to that loud music. And look at that guy with tattoos. Uh, and that girl. And who knows what goes on in that house. And, and then look at the riffraff that shows up at the church on Sunday. I know for a fact that there are serious drug abusers and several alcoholics. I hear there's some serious marital issues going on, someone else says, with those people. Oh, why, they're no better than anyone else. Putting on airs, walking to church with their Bibles every Sunday morning and evening. Yeah. That's just the sort of sinners are in church. Loving on Jesus, friend of sinners. The plain truth is that... Um, those who have set themselves against the Lord Jesus will always be finding fault with Christians and with Christ himself. And for this very simple reason, that the unconverted man or woman without the grace and spirit of God in their life are rebels who reject the rule of God over their lives and never will be content with his revelation of himself, his holy word, the Bible. Jesus will never be what people want to unsaved hearts. He'll always be too harsh, too supernatural, too narrow, too transcendent, too, too far away. Or he'll be too imminent, too personal, too powerless, too common, too easy on bad people. In our text, we see that Jesus does not dignify unbelievers with much maturity or intellectual honesty. He likens them to silly, quarreling children. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you did not mourn. <clears throat> well, truth be told, Jesus' critique about continuously finding fault touches upon you and I, at least to some degree as well. Uh, we're perhaps a little more... Um, circumspect about finding fault directly with God, but we're not slow to express our discontent with some of his rule over our lives. Here's a, a woman, who, a wife, who's forever discontent with her husband, comparing him unfavorably to other men in the church and constantly snipping at him, forever critical of his faults and failings. And she's not at all satisfied with her home either, and her job, or her children, who never seem to measure up. And this COVID thing, how long is that going to go on? Really, it is God's fault, I mean, after all. <coughs> and her husband, he's not a whit better. Um, he's a, also, well, in fact, he's, he's really a regular Pharisee. He, he's hard on his children, he, and uh, he's critical of the people he works with. And if the walls of his house could speak, they would realize that he has not got the slightest idea how to cherish his wife or bring love into his home. Together, they could not be a very attractive couple in the sight of God, from whom they have alienated themselves in their hearts and alienated a lot of other people in their family and in their church with their continual fault-finding 
and discontent. Like the children in the parable, we're not always very childlike, but childish. And there's a big difference. But, but, but despite all of this childish discontent, and willful hostility and unspoken fault-finding against God and against His works of providence and His people, in spite of all of that, the Lord takes upon Himself this name given by His enemies, the friend of sinners. Uh, Notice um, how uh, Jesus um, answers this name that's given to Him as a challenge. They call him friend of sinners, a glutton, a drunkard. <coughs> to which Jesus responds, end of verse 19, Yes, he says, that's what they call me. Yet wisdom is justified, literally acquitted, um, vindicated by her deeds. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, whatever did he mean by that? What did Jesus uh, what did Jesus do, and how does uh, who, who characterizes himself in, 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 and his deeds as wisdom? Um, what is this wisdom? Um, well, we know the answer to that. He saved us from sin, uh, from spiritual death and judgment by his deeds. Or to say it another way, Jesus vindicated or 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 justified, or proved himself to be just what they accused him of, the friend of sinners, by what he accomplished in his sinless life and sacrificial death on behalf of his people. Do you get it? How did he vindicate himself? How was he vindicated? By what he did. How did he prove he was a friend of sinners? By being a friend of sinners. One way that summarizes this very neatly is sometimes called the Great Exchange. You may have heard of that, and if you haven't, you probably should. The Great Exchange is not like taking your empty propane tank for your backyard grill over to Kmart and exchanging it for another tank, which has been filled and for which you pay a pretty penny. Um, No, uh, God's Great Exchange, uh, in God's Great Exchange, God gives his beloved and personal son, the Lord Jesus, in exchange for sinners who are morally broke. It's it's more like trading perfection for a broken down, rusted, empty propane tank with a wrong regulator on the top that never did work to begin with. Because, remember, we are all dead and broke. We don't have anything to trade God with. Um... Uh, you, you all know that, or you should know that. We've all sinned against God. There is no one righteous, not even one. And uh, the wages of sin is death. We're all spiritually dead in our sins and facing eternal death to come. Peevish children, malcontents who are never satisfied no matter what life and God gives us. Not with one another, not even with God. So the first part of this exchange was accomplished by the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, by which Jesus took our sin upon himself and whereby we, uh, for his sake, are completely forgiven, 
uh, that debt of our sin. This is sometimes called the passive obedience of Christ because he, because Christ, sinful men took Christ and took him to the cross and he was passive. He allowed that and was obedient to that, um, to that being taken to the cross. He allowed men to crucify himself and became the substitutionary sacrifice for sin. Christ died for sinners once for all, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. Now, this is not some sort of collaborative arrangement where we scratch together our change and put it all together with, along with Jesus' big bucks. And God counts it all and decides, well, between it all, there's enough to pay the debt and let us into heaven. It's it's not like that at all. Um, Jesus paid it all. We don't have anything to give. Got to get that straight. If you're trusting in Jesus and him alone, you're completely forgiven. Past, present, future. But there's a second part to the great exchange. Not only does God take upon himself, our sin, that we might be forgiven, Jesus also gives us freely all of his righteousness, all of his moral perfection, all of his goodness. Now, this is called the active obedience of Christ, uh, for Christ was sinless, uh, but he actively kept the law perfectly, and in the exchange, he gives us his perfect record. It's legal. It's forensic. We are credited with the moral perfection of Christ. We are declared righteous. Uh, We are covered with the robes of Christ's righteousness. Our filthy rags are completely covered over forever. God the Father looks upon us with delight. Not because, because we're not only completely forgiven, but also completely righteous. We are gorgeous in his sight. That's what Jesus accomplished for us. He took upon himself our sin and he exchanged it for the complete forgiveness and perfect righteousness that we receive. And all of that uh, is what gives Jesus the right to call himself the friend of sinners. That's how he proves or justifies himself to be our forever friend. Jesus is the friend of sinners, not because of anything uh, that, um, because we're particularly easy to befriend. On the contrary, we're like the bad, fault-finding, ever-dissatisfied, sinful children who are always dissatisfied and unhappy with whatever we get. But Jesus made himself the friend of sinners. It it makes a pretty good hymn. If you're not sure that he's your Savior and has taken away your sin, well, you you need to ask him. In fact, God commands it. He says, you children, you come to me. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord and Savior. Admit you're a faithless sinner. What people say about you is true, and they don't know the half of it. Ask Jesus to save you and give you his Holy Spirit. So, My last word. This name, Friend of Sinners, it was intended as a derogatory name. Uh, His enemies enemies doubtless hoped that it would stick. A friend of tax collectors and sinners they spat out. 
and, and it has stuck. But, but not as those who gave it to him expected. For we take it upon our lips as a summary of his remarkable, loving, saving relationship to us. Sinners who desperately need a very powerful friend. How could anyone possibly expect a holy God to be his friend? But how could anyone have a better friend than the Lord Jesus? Amen. Lord our God, thank you for um, this little uh, pericope, this little passage that you show us so much in. You are indeed our friend, Lord, as we sing about you, and we love to sing about you. Um, We are the friend uh, of the Lord God. You are the friend of sinners. And we bless you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen.